I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Scott. I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. And I want to talk to you today about how to handle something that all of us as human beings wrestle with. I, I kind of think of it as the, the coronavirus of the human heart. Uh, it's, it's a pandemic. And it's how to handle our desire for control and the reality of fear. Talk about that today. Uh, I'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, and um, you can follow along on the screen as I read. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. I know you've never had that problem, right? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it's the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. Well, in this, uh, in this text here, we learn a few things. Um, number one, asking a question that's related to control and fear. Our answer to that as a culture is to figure out how to win. So we're going to ask the question, how do you win? Then I want you to see in this text Jesus, what I'm going to call Jesus' surprising answer, and then Jesus' better way. How do you win? Jesus' surprising answer, Jesus' better way. How do you win? Well, I want to say what you already know. Um, I just want to highlight it for us, and I want to show you the underbelly. You know, without me having to tell you, that winning is basically a preoccupation of our culture, and for me, just as a public speaker, um, to even question that we ought to question the reality of being a winner in our culture makes you question me. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, one of my favorite pictures from the Olympic Games is Usain Bolt. You know Usain Bolt, fastest man alive. I think his record still stands. This is, a, this is him at the Olympic Games. He won it. And can you see there? He's looking back like, this is nothing. You guys are a bunch of losers. And everyone else is absolutely straining. For me, this functions as kind of a metaphor of what we think is supposed to happen. I want to be the person who's so far out front that I'm smiling while everyone else is straining. I'm such a dominator of my world that I don't even have to worry and very honestly, this is kind of the psychological promise of winning, that if you will win, you won't have to worry. The problem is, we're all worried. Now, you, you get it, right? Winning is the name of the game, and if you don't win, you what? Right. And if you lose, then you're what? A loser, that right? I, who wants to be a loser? 
Who wants to be last? When you're last, that means that you're left. You're left with worry. You're left behind. You're left alone. You're left with nothing. So we have decided culturally that we want to win because when you win, you get the recognition, you get the photos, you get the admiration, you get the acceptance, you get the power. Now, how do you, how do you win? Well, we, we kind of, I don't know that anybody laid this out as a pathway, but we've just kind of adopted culturally. I call it the pie mindset. I, I, I wanted to have here a French silk pie because I wanted to eat it after the service, but I, didn't, I wasn't able to make that happen. So could you imagine with me the best pie in the world, a French silk pie? Amen. We have a pie mindset when it comes to winning. In other words... There's only so many slices. I'd better get my slice now or I won't get one. It's a scarcity mindset about life. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called King of the Mountain. Anybody? And the goal was you would get to the top and when anybody else would come up, you would try to push them down and you would shove them down. And if you were standing, you were the king of the mountain. That's how we think about winning. It's you're either on the top or you're not. It's really important, though, that we pause and we ask what's behind our thought about winning. Because if you don't know, then you're going to hear what we talk about this morning, what Jesus says for us right here. And you're going to assume that what we're, what we're after here is some kind of behavior modification. But we're in this series called a spiritual life, and a spiritual life is not about modification, it's about transformation. It's it's about you, if you could live a whole other kind of life, not just make little tweaks to your current way of life. So if we could peel back the cover on our need to win as a culture, if we could peel back the cover on the uh, uh, the cultural agreement we've made that only winners count, what would we find there? I want to suggest that what we would find there is a desire for control and the reality of fear. You you may have seen uh, this little graphic. I don't know if we might have it on the screen for you or not, but this, you know, someone will draw a circle and they'll say, this is you. And they'll say, there are things that, oh, there it is. Yeah, it's what, you know, what I can actually control is actually very, very small. I'm not talking about the things that I control. Scripture even talks about having self-control. Like, I can control what I say. I can control what I do. I can control my attitude. I can control my response to things that happen to me in life. We're not talking about that kind of control. I'm talking about, there's many more things outside of my ability outside of your ability to control. I'm talking about the desire to try and figure out how to control those things. And I think if we pulled back the cover on, on, on the obsession we have with not being a loser, that what we would find behind that is the desire to control all the things that we can't control and the reality that we're trying to run away from fear. Uh, I, I often quote, if you're around here, you hear me quote him. His name is Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche was one of the uh, God is dead um, philosophers. He, he posited the idea, you know, God's dead. He was a philosopher. His father was a, a minister, and he just didn't like what he saw in the church. And very, very influential. He's, he, he's dead now, but um, he, this is what he said. 
He said the fundamental drive uh, of us as human beings, and, and we've taken what he said and we've made it into a thing, is what he called the will to power. He said everybody wants to be in charge. They want, they want to decide who it is that wins. And this is for, for Frederick Nietzsche, and we've adopted his mindset as a culture. This is the driving force of our culture. Who wins? Who's on top of the pile? Who is in control? And you can almost map what's happening in any culture by who wants to be on top, Frederick Nietzsche would say. And I would say, yeah, I, th- I think he's right. And then I would suggest that behind that, though, because he's talking about that desire for control, is something a lot more fragile, and it's this. If I win in life, I won't have to be afraid anymore. If I can make myself mega, if I can make myself big, then I will be in control. And then if I'm in control of all the things I can control, then I won't have to fear. A control is how we as a culture have decided you can feel okay. There's a famous story about Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Um, He was getting on an airplane one time, and he sat down in the airplane, and uh, the seatbelt, you know, when you get down in the airplane, you sit down, and the first thing you do is what? You buckle the the seatbelt, right? And uh, the stewardess said, you know, hey, you you need to uh, buckle up your seatbelt, to which Muhammad Ali said, Superman don't need no belt. To which the, uh, the, the, the flight attendant said, a Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> what, what was Muhammad Ali doing? He was, he was asking the question that we ask when we're thinking about winning. Is it possible for me? I mean, it's a ridiculous attempt on our part, but we're asking it anyway. How do I get to where I don't need a plane? How do I secure my standing in the world so that I'll be okay? How do I do that? We want to win. Now, it's real interesting that Jesus is with his disciples, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, and there's an argument, and they're arguing about which of them would be the greatest. The word great there is in the Greek is actually the word mega. That's where we get the word mega. They were trying to make themselves mega. They were trying to make themselves big. They were trying to make themselves large. Now, I want you to notice something. This is the human struggle. I want you to see that you can be around Jesus, the the suffering servant that prophet Isaiah called him, and still have this human struggle. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and what they think that means is that I have a talisman against ever getting anything wrong. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Christian means you know the right person, Jesus. But you can know the right, you know this, right? You can know the right person and still end up making the wrong decision. That's what's going on here in this, in this text. What are they doing? They're trying to establish their standing. In their day, as in ours, if you're a person of power or influence, you stand by who is in charge. You know, if you're the president, you want to be the vice president. If you're not the vice president, you're the speaker of the house. You're, if you're not the president of the company, you're one of the vice presidents. You, in, in the Old Testament, Joseph was the second in command uh, of all of Egypt. You get Robin stood beside Batman. Luke Skywalker stood beside Yoda, right? Where you stand determines your position and your power. And the, the way we think about it is we think, if I can just stand in the right place, then I will win and I will be okay. 
Mark records that when the disciples had this discussion, that the disciples came to Jesus and they were a little more explicit and they said, listen, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, because we know you're going you're gonna to come into your kingdom, Jesus, and when you come into your kingdom, we, we want to stand on your right and on your left, Jesus. Make us the people who have the positions of power. That's what we want. What are, they, what are they jockeying for? Like they want to be in the closest seat to Jesus, and so they assume, well, if Jesus is the winner, then how do I get closer? Now, do you, again, it's the same thing. Do you see what's happening here? Because this is human. If I'm close, then I'm okay. Now, I want you to see Jesus' surprising answer, and I don't, I don't want you to miss what Jesus does here, because Jesus does two things. Jesus confronts our power, hunger, and need for control, and soothes our fears. So confronts our power, hunger, and our need for control. So here's what Jesus does. He sees them arguing, and verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside. Can you see, can you get the image? Little boy brings him right here. Now, Jesus is the master of the metaphor. When Jesus wanted to talk about growth, he talked about a farmer who went out to sow seed, and the seed went in the ground, and and the soil that was fertile grew something. When Jesus wanted to talk about your spirit or your attitude or his kingdom and what it was like, he he used the the metaphor of yeast that works through something and and changes you. And and you can have a spirit that works through you in a negative way, or you can have a spirit that works through you in a positive way. When Jesus wanted to talk about value, he talked about a man who found a pearl hidden in a field and went and sold everything that he had so that he could have that pearl of great price because it was so valuable. And so when Jesus wants to talk about greatness, Jesus, the master of the metaphor, what he does is he takes a child, and he puts a child right beside him. Now, that's in Jesus' day uh, uh, more so maybe than ours, but it's still the same thing because when we think about someone great, see, we, we think about someone who's maybe a sports hero. We think about someone who's overcome great odds. I love the Olympics because at the Olympics, they'll always tell you the story behind the story of how the person got there. Or, you know, like ESPN's 30 for 30. You hear all about the person's terrible life and you know, how, what they overcame, and we go, oh, what a hero. Or, or for us, it's someone who's done something selfless or heroic. So we think about a fireman rushing into the building on 9-11. But, but like the first disciples in that culture, we would say, Jesus, but I mean, a child, what? Because children, they, they have nothing to offer. They come with a bag of needs and problems. <laughs> and they don't give you anything. They just say, here's all my problems. Could you solve them for me, please? They're insignificant, and they're weak. Why, why does, so why does Jesus pick this child to make this illustration about greatness? I mean, they have no standing whatsoever, and he, he has them, he's very intentional, has them stand. That word's very intentional, stand beside them, symbolizing his kingdom and who stands beside him, who has the seat of power, this little child. What's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is is giving a judgment of our value system, the world's value system around winning and and saying, hey, it's broken. And Jesus is giving an assessment that says that you and I need to change our direction and and need a complete reworking of our understanding. And then Jesus gives a direct confrontation of our need for control and exposes the naked power grab where we, and and basically makes us stand in the cold of our selfish ambition and, and exposes it to us. 
Because here's what we think. We think, okay, what, what I have to do is I have to, if I'm going to be great, I'm going to secure myself. If I'm going to win, then I have to do something great, and then I will get close. And so I have to have control and reduce my fear, and I will earn my place. And, and Jesus, just, it just, just like, that's, not, that's not how I operate. I understand that the world operates by that. That is not what I am looking for. And he puts a child there. I'm looking for this little and vulnerable person. That's what my kingdom is like. And in uh, one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Corinthians, very it would be like Las Vegas today. Lots of money, lots of parties, Lots of successful people go there, entertainers. And Paul writes to them and he says, listen, listen, you, you, need to, you need to stop and think what you were when you were called. God, many of you were weak. Many of you were, uh, many of you were foolish. You, God chose the weak things of the world and the foolish of the things of the world. And the things that are not, Paul says, to nullify the things that are. In other words, he's trying to say this is what Jesus is saying. My kingdom doesn't work the way the world works. And Jesus confronts it directly. That's not how it works. And then Jesus sues our fear. Now, it's an obvious question. How did the little boy get his spot of standing? He was welcomed there. He was brought there. He didn't bring himself there. Here's what Jesus is communicating. He's trying to soothe our fear about, will we get a right? Will we get the, will we get the, what do I do to get standing there? Well, it's not up to you. I bring you there. And when you, when I bring you there, it's bringing close, it's being close to me that makes you great. I bring you close, not your effort. What I prize is vulnerability because what characterizes a child, right? Vulnerability. Innocence. I mean, kids are, they're about, there's fear and control, but they're open about it, and you can put them at rest very easily when you, they know they're welcomed with love. And Jesus is reversing the values. He's saying, wait, I, I, I'm reversing the values here. I, I want you to rethink greatness. And so Jesus goes on in verse 48, and he says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it's the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. And there's the word. In the Greek language, the least is the word micro, and greatest is the word mega. And we think we're going to procure greatness by being one of the greats, and so we think greatness is ahead of us, and it's up. We, we have to forge ahead, and we have to reach up. We think that we rise into greatness. But Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus confers greatness on the weak. Oh, you, Jesus says, oh, you want to be great? I'll tell you how to be great in my kingdom. What you do is you go back and you find the little and the vulnerable, and that's where I am. And when you welcome them, you're welcoming me. And if you want to stand beside me, then what you need to do is you need to stand beside them. So you sit with the kid at lunch that no one likes, or you're kind to the person that no one talks to. You have genuine care for the poor. Jesus says, when you welcome them... You're welcoming me. We have this goal as a church that we want to reach 1% of Wichita, and a big part of that is that we want to be, we want to be a, a quarterback for hope in our city for people who are struggling and who are in need, and 
It'd be a beautiful day if as a church every year we could serve 10,000 people that are in need. Where do we get that from? Right here. All Jesus is doing, he's just repeating what he said in Luke chapter 4. If you were here a few weeks ago in the series, we talked about Luke chapter 4 and the categories of life's difficulties that Jesus came for, the poor and, and the oppressed and the prisoners. And, and, and you could argue in a sense that the Gospels are simply just Jesus saying what he means and then the disciples assuming that Jesus doesn't mean what he says and then Jesus is repeating over and over again, yeah, I meant it. I, I really mean that. I'm not kidding. My kingdom works different. Maybe the person that in the last 75 years who's maybe most exemplified this is Mother Teresa, passed away a number of years ago. She was this little nun who went into the city of Calcutta in India, and she would go out into the streets and she would find people who were dying, and she would collect them when they had no one to sit with them when they died, and her and her little group of sisters would sit and hold their hand of the weak and the dying. And she didn't do this. This is, this is pre-social media. This is pre, uh, you know, having a platform. This is, I mean, she just did this just for years, for decades. And people caught on to what Mother Teresa was doing. I want you to hear what she said, because this is the meaning and heart of Jesus. She said this, the poor are thirsty for water, but also for peace, truth, and justice. The poor are naked and need clothing, but also need human dignity and compassion for those who sin. The poor have no shelter and need shelters made of bricks, but also of a joyful heart, compassionate and full love. They are sick and need medical attention, but also a helping hand and welcoming smile. The outcasts, those who are rejected, the unloved, prisoners, alcoholics, the dying, those who are alone and abandoned, the marginalized, the untouchables and lepers, those in doubt and confusion, those who have not been touched by the light of Christ, those starving for the word and peace of God, sad and afflicted souls, those who are a burden to society, who have lost all hope and faith in life, who have forgotten how to smile and no longer know what it means to receive a little human warmth, a gesture of love and friendship, all of them. They turn to us to receive a little bit of comfort. Then listen to what she says. If we turn our backs on them, we turn our backs on Christ. What's she saying? She's saying exactly what Jesus said, that you descend into greatness. You don't rise into it. So how do you fight the monster of control and calm your fears? Well, first you're welcomed because you're brought in by the love of God, and then you descend. So what's What's Jesus' better way? Uh, it, it, in, the, in the narrative, as you read the story, this beautiful little interaction happens, and Jesus brings this little child, and, and then it's almost like John just doesn't get the memo at all. Have you ever been around someone, and, and they just aren't following the conversation? And you go, were you listening? Were you in the same room that I was? It's, that's almost what, what it seems like is happening there, because it's like John tries to shift the conversation. He doesn't like what he hears Jesus say any more than anybody does. And, and he says, Master, uh, w- we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And, and I just, when I read, I was like, John, how, how did you miss Jesus so entirely in this? He paints this picture in this scene. And, 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 he's, and John's almost like, hey, that, that, that's really nice, Jesus. That's a nice, nice little, little spiritual thoughts, Jesus. Someone who isn't us is doing good stuff, and Jesus, we don't have any control 
over that person and we want them to stop, how can that be? I just want you to not miss this because this is all tied in together. Because when you're seeking greatness, when you're trying to control everything around you, when you're giving into fear, when control and fear are in charge in your life, here's what you and I do. You and I try to put down anyone who would threaten our greatness. And Jesus says, don't. Then another scene, it seems like it's disjointed, but it's the same message. Jesus is, you know, he's, he's, uh, the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and they go to this Samaritan village. Now, if you know the history of that, the Samaritans were, hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so when the Samaritans found out that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, they just refused him. They're like, no, we don't want anything to do with you people. It's very ethnic and very racially discriminatory. And James and John, they're still not getting the message. Like, would you like us to call down fire from heaven on them, Jesus? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. Some of the older manuscripts add a line where Jesus says, you do not know what spirit you are of. I did not come to destroy the world, but to save it. Now, track with me here. When control and fear are in charge, you and I try to destroy anyone who doesn't do what we want. Are you following me? I, I, again, I, I tell you this often. I, I try to be the first one to repent, but I wrote those lines down like, okay, when control and fear are in charge, you and I try to put down anyone who would threaten our greatness, and you and I try to destroy anyone who doesn't do what we want. And I went, oh, come on. <laughs> now, I don't want you to miss, last thing I want to tell you, Jesus says... Luke says that Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? The cross. And and what's the cross? The cross is a rebuke of the world's way of greatness. You understand, don't you, that Jesus was put on the cross by the Pharisees, and the reason Jesus was put on the cross by the Pharisees is because Jesus did not fit their definition of greatness, and they wanted control, and they were afraid. And so they put down the person who threatened their greatness, and then they destroyed the person who didn't do what they wanted on the cross. That's what it's, it's a symbol of. Our, what happens when we don't get what we want? And there's Jesus on the cross, not only rebuking the world's way of greatness by allowing himself to be sacrificed and absorbing the hate and the evil and forgiving it, but also it's the sign forever that you are welcomed by God's love. Like this, Why did Jesus stretch his arms out on the cross? To open his arms and say, this is how much I love you. You are welcome. And this is the resource that you need, the gospel, to be welcomed and then descend into greatness by serving the least of these. I want to invite you to pray with me. Would you stand? Uh, Jesus, what a word from you that you simply don't operate the way that we operate. What a challenge to us because we're so used to winning. Lord, I know when we're honest, we recognize that behind a lot of that is fear. Not sure how things are going to turn out and so We want to confess that. 
we're going to need your help rooting that out of our hearts. And so we want to confess that now. Lord, we want to, we want to take you at face value. We, we've said we're followers of you. And so as a church, we want to take you at face value. And if this is what you say, if you say the important people are the least of these, then God, make them important to us. Lord, don't make us a great church by numbers and size. Make us a great church by who we serve and who we love. Make us the church that's known as the people who love the people that nobody loves. Lord, we want to be those people. Forgive us for the times we've gone after greatness in other ways. We've been wrong. Forgive us. So we humbly right now, we we bow our minds, our hearts, our attitudes, our schedules, our pocketbooks before you. And we say, okay. Thank you for the welcome. Thank you that you've welcomed us in. Thank you that you include us. Thank you for the gospel that we're in by grace. Now, God, show us how to be people of grace to a world that needs it so bad. We pray this in your name. All God's people said.